back when it came out, it was sort of billed as like Nicole and Tom are married and they're married in this movie and they're sexy, but it's like bad sexy. <laughs> listening to the Bright Wall Darkroom podcast, a space where we belly up with critics, artists, and our magazine's contributors to speak from the heart about film. I'm Veronica Fitzpatrick. And I'm Chad Perman. Chad, how are you? I'm doing okay. It's been a long month, but it's going okay today. I'm happy to be here. How about you? I'm good. I was just in New York before things really popped off so to speak. Oh, yeah. You were responsible for the whole thing, huh? It was me. Yeah, I went to the super spreader event, which was <laughs> the Museum of the Moving Images 35 screening of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah. Were you able to actually see that? I was, yeah. It was my first time to that screening room ever. Oh, wow. How was it? It was honestly unbelievable. I feel like I sometimes hesitate to see rep screenings of things I've seen a million times before. Mm -hmm. And as soon as it started, and I'm not necessarily one of those like crazy medium specificity people, Mm -hmm. but it was all crackly. Love the crackle. And the color was super vivid and the score is really incredible. And the guy who was security slash usher was really nice and let me bring a cup of water in and I was really hungover. (laughs) It was just like a perfect screening experience. Had you seen that movie before? I've seen it a million times. Yeah. I can like play it in my mind at any moment. (laughs) Wow. What a treat. Yeah. It was a beautiful, it's a beautiful space. Cool. Really special screening. You continue to go to all the movies that I do not. So I know. uh, I don't have any kids. Yeah. (laughs) I know. Yeah. And we were finally going to go back out there, but the new variant, all that stuff. I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. Might try it this next couple of weeks. A lot of stuff I want to see. You saw French Dispatch though recently, no? I did. Yeah. This weekend, but it was streaming. Mm Mm-hmm. But I loved it. Oh, my God, I loved it so much. Unfortunately, it does end my streak of all the way back to 1999 of seeing all the Wes Anderson movies in the theater. So, oh, no. <laughs> so I did have to stream it. But uh, hey, it's better than nothing. Great movie. I loved it. It's too bad you aren't here in Providence because the Avon Cinema has been playing that exclusively for like oh my. 10 weeks. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm sure it's showing all around. I just started looking to even go to theaters recently. So yeah. I'm just kind of popping my head above ground. And then now, of course, going back into my shell uh, until until this new uh, variant passes. So. Hopefully soon. Exciting pod talk. Yeah. <laughs> you want to introduce our theme and our guest? Uh, I would love to. I might need some help on the theme. Um, I will help. Okay. Why don't you introduce the theme and then I'll introduce the guest. So the theme of this month's issue and our conversation is FUBAR. Do you just say it? You don't spell it out? Uh-huh. I think so. I mean, that's how I've always heard it. I, well, see, I had never heard it until we decided that it was going to be our theme and I had to ask you. Okay. Yes, you did. Which is the acronym for Fucked Up Beyond All Repair, though I've also heard it as Beyond All Recognition. Yeah, I like both. Okay. Interesting. I like the ambiguity. I do too. I do too. Yeah. So embracing the chaos. Yeah. we, we It was actually Ethan's idea. Um, we usually hmm. we go with a holiday theme and try to make the end of the year all pretty. And we're like, <laughs> that's you know not where anybody's at right now. Let's go FUBAR. So we got a whole issue full of either movies themselves that are FUBAR or that have FUBARed production histories. I love it as a verb. But it's a great issue and a great read. So I, I really, I'm really proud of it, what we've got going so far. And our guest today, joining us today on the show, one of my favorite people on earth. She's actually been with Brightwall Darkroom longer than just about anyone else, all the way back to 2009, when she agreed to write for the weird little film Tumblr site that I'd set up. She was our very first managing editor for the first three years of the magazine. And then it was so cool because she returned in 2020. Right when the pandemic kicked up, she was the only good news during that time saying, hey, I'd like to come back. (laughs) And she's now an editor and regular contributor to the site. She's also a teacher, a wonderful English teacher, shaping impressionable young minds. And she is a wonderful poet as well, published and with a PhD in it, no less from USC. So welcome, Elizabeth Cantwell. Hello. Hello. Let's talk about Eyes Wide Shut. How are you? I am so excited to be on this podcast talking Eyes Wide Shut. (laughs) Yes. And I've loved listening to the podcasts, by the way. Oh, that's great. 
Every time I listen to them, I'm like, oh, it would be so cool to be on a Brightwall podcast. <laughs> well, and and please nobody Google this, but uh, we did, you know, have a version of the podcast several years ago that was not like this at all. Yep. That was just kind of a mess. But Elizabeth <laughs> and I were on several of those and we actually used to debate movies. We did, which was fun. She's a very fun debate partner. Yes. Well, the original Brightwall podcast is how I first saw Vertigo. Oh, wow. Whoa. I had never seen Vertigo and yeah. we did it for a podcast. And yeah. And it's okay to Google that one episode because that episode I'm not on, but it is fantastic. <laughs> But otherwise, please don't Google that old shit. <laughs> no. <laughs> this is the good real version. Okay. So Elizabeth, uh, and I think if I'm not wrong, that you saw Eyes Wide Shut for the very first time this year. Is that right? No. So last year. Last so year. Around the same time, I think almost exactly a year ago. Mm. Okay. Cool. I finally was like, what is this movie that I feel like I should like <laughs> that I've never seen? And it was one of those things that, you know, from the first five minutes, I was going, oh, my God, this movie was made for me. Where was I? Yeah. <laughs> Hell of a first five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's great. And yeah, just rewatched it yesterday and I'm excited to talk about it. Very cool. Well, Veronica, do you want to like uh, walk us through the whole setup of Eyes Wide Shut? Yeah, I can do it. All right. So Eyes Wide Shut, our favorite psychosexual Christmas movie <laughs> <laughs> among so many. Yes. Kubrick's last film, famed for its overlong shooting schedule, I think holding the Guinness record for 14 months, including reshoots, and for the 20-minute orgy scene, I think for which it's like <laughs> most remembered, though if you think about that in an over two and a half hour long film, it's not really that much of a central aspect. It's way more non-orgy, yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, let's come <laughs> back to the specifications of the orgy scene. And there were also at the time, I mean, I just have read many places that Tom Cruise was like considered the most bankable movie star mm -hmm. in 1998, 1999. Absolutely. Was getting like 20, 25000000 million up front for projects and was married to Nicole Kidman while they're playing this fictional married couple, Bill and Alice Harford. So... Bill runs into an old med school colleague, Nick Nightingale, at a Christmas party, has an extremely destabilizing post-weed smoking fight with his wife <laughs> back at home, and is called away by a patient and subsequently spends the next 24 hours on an erotic journey of masquerade and frustration, <laughs> featuring a costume shop, a mansion, several sex workers, and this very emotional reevaluation of marriage and life as they know it. A Stanley Kubrick movie. A Stanley Kubrick movie. A quintessential <laughs> Stanley Kubrick joint. Yeah. And then, of course, he died like a few months before it came out. Yeah. Six days after showing an initial cut to Cruz and Kidman. Yeah. 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 And I was just going to start by asking if you guys, were you aware of any of this back in 1999? Because this was like mm. right when I was all into movies and, you know, getting my film degree and working at the video store. Like, so I was all in in 99. So this was, I remember this journey very well, but I'm curious if you guys had any awareness back when it first came out. I think one of the reasons I never saw it is because I, I remember back when it came out, it was sort of billed as like Nicole and Tom are married and they're married in this movie and they're sexy, but it's like bad sexy. And I got the idea that it was something that I should not see, I think, as a teenager where I was like, I don't know if that's allowed. And I don't remember it being billed as a Kubrick film or as artistically interesting. Mm. It was just sort of the sexual and marital thrill of it all. So I was really blown away when I watched it last year by just what a film it is, right? What a film. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Capital F. Yeah, same. I think people were obsessed with the content and it seeming shocking, it being sensationalized. I remember there being a little bit of kind of like MPAA ratings stuff swirling around scenes of a sexual nature. I remember really wanting to see it, but not coming to it until a bit later. And I am really into sad, depressing Christmas content, I would say. <laughs> um, equally open to like the Love Actually brand or like Hallmark rom-com style Christmas movie. But did you say equally? Yeah, I think. Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yep. Love Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Criterion Channel Streaming did a like Blue Christmas series last winter that I thought was really compelling. And I don't know, it's just a time similar to birthdays where you're doing a lot of reevaluation and it's all really disappointing what you're realizing about yourself 
often your choice. <laughs> that's something I think the film is really interested in and Kubrick is interested in more generally and something I am interested in personally. Well, it's also one of those movies that's about sex, but is not sexy. Oh God, it's not sexy. I guess you have to define sexy, but I don't find it like something that makes me want to go out and find a partner, <laughs> you know? It kind of has that opposite effect. <laughs> yeah, where you're like, I feel very unsettled by all these people's relationships. Veronica, what's the face about? I, <laughs> I know <laughs> I know that that is a widely held opinion about the film, but I do think some scenes are genuinely sexy, I would say. Okay, I'm here for that. <laughs> well, okay, there's two categories of sort of things that I think are, if not explicitly all of them sexy, at least sort of compelling and erotic in the film. The orgy is not among them. Let me like be okay. really upfront okay, about good. that. Yeah. All right. Good. Okay. That's good, Veronica. Yeah, the orgy's not in there. <laughs> But the relationship that Bill and Alice have as a married couple, and I'm saying this as an unmarried person, so Ooh. I understand I'm in the ignorant minority in this room. <laughs> <laughs> There's something about the like combination of, I don't know, exhaustion and exasperation. Perfect words. But enduring sort of interest and personal history and family ties that surfaces an authenticity that I think the film overall is sort of shying away from with all of its artifice, you know, like shooting London for New York, for example, because Kubrick didn't want to fly and all the sort of weird stiltedness of some of the dialogue, which I love and find extremely quotable. Oh, man. Yeah, me too. Yeah. But that relationship, there's something about it. And I think it's probably due to these like crazy numerous takes that Kubrick had them do in order to arrive at something that couldn't be rehearsed. Which is not unlike a marriage. You know, that's how marriages are. <laughs> yeah. Stanley Kubrick new marriage. Yeah, no, and that's what I was going to say. I mean, it's interesting because the question was what things you find sexy. So are you saying you find that marriage sexy? Yeah. The enduringness of it? I do. Yeah. I, I mean, it's sexy in a much more sophisticated way, which I agree with. Yeah. I yeah. The end, they end in a sexy place. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's ultimately a happy ending. A Read. Eyes Wide Shut 2 is going to be a banger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't have used that word, but yeah, that's what I came back to, too. And, and hearing you talk through that kind of crystallized for me. Uh, it's the only real thing in the whole movie mm. is their marriage. Mm -hmm. All the rest is artifice and craziness and even the, the kind of performative dances that I think we do in relationships and marriages. Mm -hmm. I mean, he just stays with it. And I think the 95 takes, I think the weird like psychosexual mind games Kubrick was playing with them on set. Mm -hmm. You can argue about whether you think it's moral or ethical to do this to people, but I think that it was all in service of kind of like these people are tools in my toolkit here and I am going to actually break them down until there's just nothing there but the actual relationship, which is why it's so cool that in real life, I mean, mm -hmm. they were a real couple. And and so he was saying, I'm going to strip all this down and film it. And you could argue whether that's sexy or not, but I think it's really fascinating. Yes. But I will also say there's something about, and again, I don't think this is a tremendously popular opinion, but <laughs> I have had a crush on Tom Cruise since I was a child. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Fascinating. I'm really taken with his like star persona. Yeah. And just find him handsome and charismatic and believable. I'm obsessed with the Mission Impossible franchise. That blows my mind. That's fascinating. Yeah. Love, love Tom Cruise. And so there's something about it that like, I don't know, especially when he's encountering some of these women for the first time. And Cruz as Dr. Bill is doing this like wolfish, cheesy, almost exuding of charisma that's a little bit creepy. The movie is populated by these kind of individual women that he keeps interfacing with, whether it's a secretary in the office or a girl at the coffee counter or whatever. And everyone seems kind of under his thrall. Mm -hmm. And I, too, am susceptible <laughs> to the sort of strange charms of Tom Cruise. Kubrick really purposely deconstructed Tom Cruise's star charm. Mm. He, he just beat that out of him. And that was a big criticism of the movie, mm. at least when it first came out. I, I do love reading the reviews from 1999 versus now when it's kind of retroactively assumed to be a masterpiece that everyone always knew. But mm -hmm. the reaction was just intensely awful when it came out and Cruise himself was vilified for it, mm -hmm. for just sinking this movie with his unstarness, how uncharismatic he was throughout. And I love his performance in this. Yeah, me too. I also am fascinated by Tom Cruise, Veronica, but mm. to me, he's like a beautiful cyborg. Yeah. Where I'm like, what is this man? You know? And like, <laughs> he often, to me, in roles, doesn't have real chemistry with people mm. because he just seems to be, like I said, a beautiful cyborg. There's not that spark between him and the other people. Mm. But in this movie, I do think that his real relationship with Nicole and the way that so often he seems, as Chad was saying, tamped down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
But in a way, it actually magnifies his connection with her on screen. Hmm. And I love that he's so uncruise in this yeah. movie. Like he never gets to run. Mm. No running. He never gets to yell, really. He never shows anyone the money. No. <laughs> But I love it. I think it's one of his best performances. I totally agree. I would agree. Yeah. You know, this is jumping ahead in terms of plot, but just because we're on the subject of Tom Cruise's sexiness or not in this film, on his night around Fairytale New York, mm -hmm. he meets this woman, Domino, who, who's a sex worker, who picks him up on the street, takes him home. They have a bit of a makeout and then he leaves. They don't end up doing anything. He pays her anyway. He returns to that scene, the site that is like her apartment, one night later, so the following night, and is greeted by her roommate, Sally. It's the encounter they have in the kitchen that I think is the sexiest part of the movie. Hmm. He's basically the same height as this <laughs> lady roommate, and she's wearing this kind of voluminous denim shirt that's knotted at the waist, and we don't see what's happening, but he unbuttons the buttons on her shirt, hmm. undoes the knot, and puts his hands inside the shirt. And again, we don't see what he's doing exactly, but it's really to credit to the performance of the actress playing Sally because her responsiveness feels so authentic to me. And at one point, mm -hmm. she just goes, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> which I just feel like which is what you do if you're in a room with Tom Cruise that's how it feels when you're like on the precipice of an inadvisable but tempting encounter yeah. with someone because it's also totally fantastical that the roommate would fuck him in that moment you know like <laughs> what I mean it just participates in this whole thing where the world of Eyes Wide Shut is just constant possible sexual encounters yeah. even though we don't really see much of them they're either fantasized or there's weird flirt there's a lot of interruption, but the sense of possibility seems really important. Even his interaction with Alan Cumming in the hotel. Like, 100%. Alan Cumming is like, I would go home with you right now. Like, the plot is that we need to know that, you know, shit went down with Nick. Mm. But the reason for that scene is, again, that implied sexual contract you know, question mark that's happening everywhere. Mm -hmm. Which like uh, dynamically is a really interesting thing to show up like two thirds of the way through the movie where mm -hmm. like he's continually in this weird dreamlike psychosexual journey that he's always getting frustrated by or it's not working out or, you know, obviously it's going pretty bad for him. And then he turns that energy to like, fine, I'm just going to go out and like make something happen here. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting term, but also, I mean, it still doesn't work, but he then starts encountering people. The interactions are much different dynamic. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in the way that the energy moves throughout the film, starting off with a, sorry, starting off with a bang and, you know, tracking through that. There's so much going on in how it feels like a dream throughout the whole thing. And mm. obviously that's not a new point 22 years later. Mm. This was probably the seventh or eighth time I watched it last night. And I was really just kind of tracking like, okay, how's he making it feel so much like a dream besides the weird kind of linear, kind of just random tangential journey that he's on uh, that feels like a dream. Mm. But he does these fade-ins, which I, I guess I was aware of, but I always forget until I see them. You just don't see those in movies where, where scenes fade out and then you fade in on the next scene. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel like something I've seen in a movie that's been made in the last several years. So I think that that just kind of episodic like it feels like there's pieces you're missing the same way like a tv show often does <laughs> well it seems related i think the idea of the crossfades giving this sense of like ellipsis to the film yeah exactly yeah to what elizabeth you were saying which is that you were delighted by how much of a capital f film the movie is what all else are you thinking about when you think about the sort of like cinematic quality of this movie this is going along with what Chad was saying about the dreamlike nature, but I'm fascinated by the way Kubrick uses time in the movie, mm, yeah. where time just feels stretched in an impossible way, really beautifully. Like, <laughs> so I'm mildly obsessed with The Shining, but you know how in The Shining, <laughs> mm -hmm. the navigation of space is impossible, Absolutely, right? Where you yeah. have these doors that open up onto other doors and open up onto other rooms that if you try to map the hotel out, it actually doesn't fit, mm -hmm. right? Like those rooms can't fit in the space that we are shown in The Shining, where space keeps opening up. And of course, that makes you think like, oh, the space is the space of the mind, right? Kubrick is doing a very similar thing, sometimes with space in this movie, mm -hmm. but especially with time, where time blossoms time, yeah. in this way that it feels like it shouldn't. And the scenes even are so long. Mm -hmm. They are. Like they stretch on for a really long time and people take a long time to say <laughs> lines, right? Like the lines are just... Oh, <laughs> yes. Like these weird stretched out versions of talking. 
no one's in a rush. And then there's that, I feel like about an hour of the film, I was trying to calculate it last night, but almost an hour of it is just one night. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's not continuous. Do you know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. it's not like we're in real time. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. But the scenes stretch out for so long that you start calculating like, well, what time could it actually be at this point? Like, how is it still nighttime? This makes no sense. We've seen all of these things happen. Watching it always reminds me that all of that stuff doesn't happen in one night because that's always my memory of it, even though, I mean, right now it's not, but by tomorrow it will be my memory of it again, is that the whole movie takes place in one night and then the next morning, Mm -hmm. which is not what it is. But I also don't know if I could accurately pass the test right now on the actual number of days that pass in this film. I think it's three from the party to the to the department store at the end. Yeah, I think so. No, I noticed when I was rewatching this morning that when we see daylight again, like after the whole masquerade party has happened, Mm -hmm. it's like an hour and 38 minutes into the film. And we haven't seen daylight since he like went to work that morning. So it does have this feeling of like just distension in terms of how long a night feels when you don't really go to bed. (laughs) But also the fact that all the exterior light that's implied when we're inside is blue, like bright blue. Yes. In this way that's like uh, not redolent of any real time, but if it is, it's closest probably to like 6 a.m., like dawn, Mm -hmm. I guess. And it's only like that for a little bit every day. But I I love the sort of expressive, crazy use of color in the film and the blue light coming from outside is a big part of that. Mm -hmm. I read that he force processed the film Mm -hmm. so that Mm -hmm. it's just a little Mm -hmm. heightened color wise, right? Mm -hmm. Which is great. And I also (laughs) think the way he uses light Yes, is so wonderful, right? Like the Christmas lights that are in every scene and the way that they're glowing, Mm -hmm. like in the party, in that opening party scene, the glow from the lights almost washes out the frame at times. And it's beautiful and very dreamy. Oh, man, it's overwhelming. Yeah, it's incredible. I think the combination of using natural light sources, like a lot of that is just those curtains of Christmas lights lighting the scene, giving that crazy like amber glow. Do you not just long to go to a party like that? Like every year. I kind of do. But to watch, I would not interact. The first party specifically. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. yeah. Victor's <laughs> party. It's just so elegant and like rich and yeah. nice. But also the combination of that, which is very Barry Lyndon in my mind, that kind of like use of natural lighting. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But then the push processing, amplifying the effect so that it's extra glowy. Even though it doesn't make sense that all these rich people would be using those like corny... <laughs> large <laughs> rainbow lights like I just don't buy it yeah. rich people use white Christmas lights but okay the rainbow ones look great <laughs> there was something about how it's like this whole actual movie is actually this big capitalist take did you guys ever read or come across any of that stuff I saw something like that yeah that was weird but it also kind of tracks I mean let's at some point get into the the Sydney Pollock uh, Tom Cruise dynamic because that's a fascinating one too mm-hmm. you guys probably saw in my notes uh was harvey Keitel until like halfway through the shoot and no footage is leaked you know in 22 years but there's got to be some harvey Keitel and tom cruise footage out there so. you can imagine it <laughs> i think yeah and i think jennifer jason lee i read was in the movie like yes. yeah do you know oh, what wow. role she was playing was she like domino or I, I have no idea what role she i couldn't figure that out no i think she plays the woman who when bill is receives the phone call after or like in the midst of the fight he's having with alice saying that marion is marion yeah that her oh, father God. has passed that's who that was mm. supposed to be which you can also totally imagine that kind of fragile i could totally see her playing that role 100 percent. yeah i love that interaction that he has with marion it's so great i know it's the one time when he like fights the dream because he's like we don't know each other or whatever line he says when he like she's like doing that dream thing and then he's just like he just says we we've talked like never before in your life except for about your father and that's like the last time he tries to kind of fight mm. the the dream like mm. nature of the movie, which was interesting. I think he's simply not attracted to her. That's <laughs> the only difference I can think of is that he's flattered by her attention. Yeah. And that's why he calls her again later in the film, but that he's just not into it. Mm. But it is funny that her fiance, Carl, is played by the actor who's Dermot in Darwin Craig. Craig. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Sorry to yes. that man. I don't remember his name. <laughs> I think it's Thomas something or other. But I always think it's Peter Gallagher. Oh, yeah. oh really? That would be so great <laughs> if it was Peter Gallagher. It seems like Peter Gallagher. But I do like how Marion and Carl double Bill and Alice. Yes, yeah. precisely. In sort of that uncanny way, right? Where they're sort of like just bizarro versions of Bill and Alice. Yeah, exactly. exactly. That sort of uncanniness seeps through the film in so many ways. Mm. Depending on what your take is on dream psychology. But yeah, that absolutely would show up in a dream, like a twisted version of your bizarro self and your wife in your own dream that you'd encounter would be a fascinating thing. Well, the doubling is like, it structures the film in a bigger way too, right? Because we do have these two parties. So the first one is when Bill and Alice, we meet them on their way to this character, Victor's house, his Christmas party, who is not in the original schnitzel novella, right? Mm -mm. That this is based on dream story, which I haven't read. I don't know. Have you? I read it uh, 10 or 15 years ago. It was, it was pretty dense, but uh, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And so the Victor character is then this kind of intermediary for Bill in his somnambulant erotic night life and then his day life where, because he actually has met Alice as well. So they're at that party. I mean, let's talk about that party. I think one of the main things that happens there is we see Alice have this extended flirtation. They both do, right? They both have these kind of weird flirtatious episodes that seem very much to be like a precursor to the jealousy that dominates their mindsets for the rest of the film. Yeah, I was going to say that I had it in the notes and I took it out because I don't know if the theory fully tracks. But I think the entire movie is set up, themes, characters, everything in that party scene. Mm. Because even Nick, the piano player, is there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the themes of her, you know, the imaginary affair she has in her head that sets off a lot of the plot. She's having an imaginary kind of affair with this this guy, this Victor guy. Is it Victor? Is that the guy's name? Sander is the guy. Okay. The sort of very tall kind of count-like figure that she dances with. Yeah, so she has this flirtation. He's off trying to both be a doctor and help people slash, I say that, get his jollies a little bit. He like, he's canoodling. Yeah, he's in that seductive thing, but he also gets called away just like he gets called away. And, you know, mm-hmm. so they just set up so much. I don't know if that tracks for everybody, but I, th- I think it plays out the whole movie in that in those 20 minutes. So. Well, I was even thinking, yeah, when he because remember at one point that I like that you called him a count like figure. He kind of is. Yes. I like it at one point he says, like, let's go see the sculpture garden mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's kind of this insinuation that they're gonna go fuck but like oh we're gonna go see a sculpture garden but I do feel like the later orgy scene is like a sculpture garden oh perfect yeah. great the way that it is staged like that's the sculpture you know what I mean like yeah. they they do get to the sculpture garden mm. yeah so he, again foreshadowing yeah <laughs> I love that he's a hundred percent at that orgy somewhere oh yeah for sure <laughs> it's such an iconic party scene you know yes Nicole Kidman downing the champagne on her way to the bathroom. I love how fast she gets wasted. Like yeah. she's fine. And then the next minute she's like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> like totally, totally wasted. An all time great performance of drunkenness from Nicole Kidman in that scene. Yeah. I love how Elizabeth, you were saying how slow the speech is. It's not quite slurring, but there's something really like liquid and really feline about her embodiment. And she's super flirtatious not very reluctant to engage with what's happening. Can see Bill across the room with these two models, which I have to say, when I was at Cornell last year, (laughs) one of the visiting faculty members was this filmmaker, Stuart Thorndike, who I'm sure will not listen to this. But when I was looking her up, I realized that she plays the model in the pink dress in Eyes Wide Shut. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, we emailed a little bit and I feel like it's not a cool thing to like fangirl out about but I was like I just have to say <laughs> you're in one of my favorite Christmas movies of all time <laughs> just such a cool jingle all the way I know yeah probably not the claim to fame she is a like working artist herself wants to have but incredible when I rewatched that scene yeah it is interesting because in terms of the way that the movie talks about marriage mm. I do think that when you go to a party with your spouse you don't want to spend the whole night with your spouse totally no right like you want to have different interactions yeah but the fact that the other person is there Mm -hmm. gives you this tie like it almost gives you a license right like Mm -hmm. well I'm allowed to flirt a little bit at this Mm -hmm. party because everyone knows I'm going home with my spouse Mm -hmm. it allows me to like experiment and have fun Mm -hmm. in a contained safe way yeah you literally just described attachment theory it's awesome (laughs) 
<laughs> no, it's awesome being like the little kid who's like, I need to look mm. back and know that my mom's still there and then I can explore right. further, but I can only do that if I have a comfortable base. And mm. so they're kind of each other's comfortable, secure bases that they return to. That's great. Yeah, isn't that the thing that they romanticize in a platonic way in Frances Ha? Mm-hmm. She's like, isn't it great to like see your person across the room at a party yeah. and you're in separate conversations, just kind of separate together? Oh, yeah, that is. I do remember that mm-hmm. part. That Yeah, good, good callback, yeah. As we come to find out, they do go home together, but things go awry. And it's precisely <laughs> in describing what we're talking about that Alice, under a bit of the influence, gets super mad. Yeah, they use the energy they take from their romantic encounters. Mm. In therapy, this is what you want people to do. If you guys are familiar with Esther Perel at all. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> uh, to take the erotic energy from your flirtations that you're having out in the world with other people and bring those back into your marriage. And when they come home, that's when the Chris Isaac scene happens. And so they use the fuel, so to speak, of the party and the erotic kind of flirtations and, mm-hmm. and imagined seductions or whatever's happening in those scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they kind of put that into each other, so to speak speak but again that build up that was the scene that everyone saw in the trailer that was the scene that everyone was like mm-hmm. this is going to be like straight up horno you're going to see them actually having sex i mean it was like so built up and then he just fades it out right when they start going <laughs> just... and so specifically you're talking about like nicole kidman naked in the mirror naked in the mirror yeah, yeah. doing some kind of before bed stuff <laughs> some before bed stuff and the chris isaac song baby did a bad bad thing which i read when she was shooting the nude scenes with the guy who plays like the naval officer in the fantasies oh, yeah, I read that, about that Bill is having, I guess, like nightmare visions that Bill is having of his wife fantasizing. It's like a yeah, those weird black and white. Mm-hmm. They're blue. They're like kind of blue and white. Uh-huh. They are. Yeah, yeah. But he let her or invited her to pick her own music for those scenes. And she picked that song. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that he blocked Cruz off from being any part of that shoot right. and then made her film for like, it was like 50 hours with this male model. Yeah, it was like six days and <laughs> he asked her not to tell him what happened. Like Kubrick was the devil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's terrible. He said, don't assuage his feelings. And anyway, I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Fun. Yeah, directors. Directors. Yeah, the jealousy, like what we're talking about, this idea of flirtation as an opportunity to either inject sexiness back into the relationship Mm -hmm. or create space for a rift in the relationship is what happens next. And it does both, yeah. Yeah, she's like, yeah, this guy wanted to fuck me. And he says, you know, of course, you're a very beautiful woman. And she's like, what are you talking about? (laughs) This like iconic meltdown. As good as she plays drunk, she plays stoned really, really well. It's not a version of being stoned that I can relate to at all, frankly. Oh, no, I, yeah, I can't relate personally to it, but I can relate to people around me having that the weird, ag- when it turns aggressive. Really? Like, oh, yeah. When they start going after you in this what? really specific, weird way, and like she's like <laughs> mimicking him and demeaning him. It's just. Oh, the mimicking is great. Yeah. Whew. Or like, yeah, that kind of funny ridicule voice that she does, the baby <laughs> voice. It's outrageous. <laughs> Dr. Bill Sticky. Yeah, exactly. It's really funny. It's so great. I do think that both of their performances are just incredible in this film. So good. It's not just the jealousy, though, that's fueling all of this. Mm. There's also underlying that these implications undercutting Bill's masculinity, mm-hmm. right? So, mm. like, that one scene on the street with that gang of guys, which is so, like, yeah. to me, that's one of the weirdest scenes in a very weird film because mm-hmm. they all seem like caricatures out of a comic book or something. And they're like, what team is this guy playing for? <laughs> Move back to San Francisco, man! And it's like, what? <laughs> like, the, their their insults are, are just really strange, and it feels very unreal. Yeah, yeah. that's a weird thing with the adaptation because I read that the ridiculing is uh, like an anti-Semitic group of people. Oh, okay. Yeah. Importantly, and we haven't talked about this really, the context of the original novella is like Jewish. Right. Mm-hmm. And in Vienna, and when we moved to New York and it's suddenly this like Christmas movie, it's not taking place over like Mardi Gras, I think it is in the novella. Yeah. And these like homophobic frat question mark guys who are all wearing Yale sweatshirts. I always get frat vibes. Yeah, it, yeah. very weird. Yale? <laughs> Why Yale? Hey, Elizabeth went to Yale. Elizabeth, what's going on? Listen, there were a lot of guys like that. What can I say? <laughs> I find that so mysterious. Yeah, but that's a great point that there is this kind of masculinity and crisis that pervades the movie. Yeah. Well, and he's always like, as far as if you're reading spatial symbolism, there's really no phallic symbols in the movie. It's all these yawning 
yonic spaces, mm. right? He's always walking into rooms and mm. going through hallways and mm. there's more big rooms and there's all of these spaces. Do you just want to talk about The Shining? <laughs> I do want to talk about The Shining, but also even in this movie, think about all of the spaces he's constantly entering into and like, oh, like absolutely. They keep yawning open in these very womb-like ways. Mm. I can think of similar experiences that I felt uh, internally from the cameras and the spaces on 2001 on Barry Lyndon. And I just don't think his brain works like anyone else who's ever made movies. I think that's what I'm mm. trying to dance around in a fascinating way. And he had the time and resources and ability to go off and make this world. But I don't think it was just because he couldn't fly. I mean, I know legendarily he could not fly. Mm. But I think he wanted to create a New York on a soundstage in London. I, I think he wanted mm -hmm. the, the ear reality if that's a word mm -hmm. and I remember people pointing out as like gotcha moments on the internet mm. in a sign of things to come on the internet <laughs> um, in 1999 where people were like hey that you wouldn't see a sign like this in New York and they're like yeah you think Kubrick missed that yeah right you think that this guy spent 30 years on this movie and he accidentally left a sign in that wasn't supposed mm -hmm. to be there? yeah well it's that uncanny <laughs> nature right like the Heimlich becomes unheimlich the familiar becomes unfamiliar exactly you've got something that you think you should understand but all of a sudden it's twisted just so that you're not recognizing it yeah. the same way that the space of the marriage becomes uncanny. Ooh, good call. I have a question related to this though, because it's bothering me. <laughs> I really feel like the woman who plays Mandy, mm -hmm. the woman who overdoses at the beginning of the film, and then we're supposed to understand, I believe, that she is the woman at the party who intervenes for him mm -hmm. in this very Christ-like way, if we're talking about Christmas, where she sacrifices herself for his sins, mm -hmm. right? And she's like, mm -hmm. take me. <laughs> And then he sees her in the morgue and he identifies her body and it is indeed confirmed as the same woman. But the actress at the party is not the actress from the beginning, right? Or am yeah. I like, I feel like That's she right. has a different yeah. body. And the voice, you guys know who the voice is? And the voice is Kate Blanchett. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know. But the fact that her body changes really bothers me. Mm. But I do think it's intentional. Oh, it's got to be. It's like the self is not the self. The body is not the body. Mm. Her body is different. But there's so much focus on her body, mm -hmm. right? Each time. That's really all there is to focus on. Yeah. Yeah. She's masked. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's one of the dancers. Or actually, sorry, she wasn't a dancer. She was a runway model that was hired to do the orgy scene that plays the woman that we see in the orgy scene who was plucked out by Kubrick because she was really good at walking in heels. Like she just had a good comportment. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And her walk is so iconic yeah. in that moment. You know, she has this great kind of rhythmic sway, I think. And as you said, Chad, it's like there isn't that much more to focus on. We don't get faciality, obviously. So all we have is like the way she's moving. Yeah. Yeah. But different actress. Yeah, I do think that the fact that she is played by two different actresses, but we're supposed to understand it's one person has a lot to do with the overall feel of the movie that you can't ever really unite your experiences, right? Mm -hmm. And because at the very end, when they're in the toy store, mm -hmm. he says to her, like, a dream is never just a dream, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's her fantasy, mm -hmm. as Chad said way earlier, her fantasy of infidelity mm -hmm. that kicks all of this off, not an act of infidelity right yeah but the fantasy in some ways is more hurtful to him mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right than hearing that it had actually happened well she makes it really hurt. i mean saying like i would have given up everything yeah. for this man <laughs> my whole future yeah <laughs> yes yeah it was like whoa oh my god yeah it's a lot <laughs> yeah i mean it, yeah he gets set off on a quite the odyssey after that the layering is so compelling mm -hmm. because it's bill's vision of her fantasy it's his brain that is sort of the perceptual like apparatus yeah. that's creating those kama sutra like images of her that we see throughout the film mm -hmm. so that's also by the way his fantasy of a man right because he he doesn't remember what this man looks like totally. yeah <laughs> And it's also Kubrick's attempt at like, okay, let me think how a, a normal filmmaker would make a little sex scene. Like mm. I, I like that. <laughs> like Kubrick shot that. Yeah. But it's so unlike any other footage in his whole entire filmography. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, here's what it would be like if I made a little porno. Yeah. So I, I just think that that part's fascinating too because it, it sticks out so strangely with the dreamlike nature of everything else when it cuts to this mm -hmm. very obviously like uh, mimetic device. I don't know. It's fascinating. Yeah. Not a memory and not her fantasy. No. But his sort of projection based on 
on her fantasy. <laughs> Psychology. I know. It's very, it's like removed, removed, removed. I don't know. What do, what do you guys think of, uh, I don't even know if this is the right word choice, but the passive nature of, of him up until the end of the orgy scene when he just, he seems to be just taking in everything that's happening. Mm. How he kind of just sleepwalks through the mm. whole first part, even though, I mean, he's having the experiences, so he's not asleep, but he's got the weirdest energy to him that I, I don't think is just explained by him being beaten down by Kubrick for 400 days. I don't know. I think I don't see him as having a particularly like flat or detached performance. Really? No. If anything, it feels a little bit like that night leading up to the orgy when he goes to Cafe Sonata and goes in and sees Nick and they have this exchange. And then he goes to the rainbow costume place and gets the cape and the mask and everything and has this weird encounter with Mr. Millick. And his daughter, played by Lily Sobieski. Mr. Millick, yes. In a sort of like Lolita throwback. All of that feels like Bill is in some ways a surrogate for the viewer to me. And that we too are expected to just sort of drift through these scenes, Mm -hmm. experience what we experience, perceive what we perceive without a lot of causality. And it just feels kind of associative, almost like a dream logic. Outside of the fact that it's happening at night, it doesn't feel like it's particularly sleepy (laughs) on Chris's part. Yeah, I don't see him as passive. I see him as more unmoored. Mm. Mm. Okay. I'll take that, yeah. He seems very distracted and unable to really commit to being present in any particular moment. But isn't that kind of passive? Yeah, but I feel like passive is too passive. No. <laughs> okay. Active passive. Yeah, actively <laughs> passive. I mean, he doesn't even seem that engaged with his job or I know that's what I'm saying he's he's like a a vessel an empty vessel but I'm not yeah I'm trying to stir something up because we've gone at least half the show and Elizabeth and I have not fought yet (laughs) I have to tie Elizabeth on this one sorry (laughs) but what I just said was making me think that it is interesting how he is a doctor and yet we never really see him help anyone i know he comes up to the room when mandy's od'd but what does he do he just kind of sits there and like yells her name he's like mandy yeah mandy are you okay and then says like wait an hour you know yeah. we never see him actually help or heal in any way right well and at the office the next morning they spend as much time showing him walk through and saying he wants coffee as they do like showing him examining women yeah i don't think he examines men does he ever examine a man in this movie there is no there is isn't there an older man laying down and he lifts his leg up oh Oh, yeah. yeah. In the montage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Listen, it's very unclear what kind of medicine he practices. He's a doctor. Exactly. <laughs> what does he do? Definitely not a concern of the film. No. No, he seems to practice medicine that involves like feeling people's body parts. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a leg for sure. <laughs> this one is a toe. <laughs> I've definitely had those thoughts before, which I I remember thinking this in 1999 too. And he's a little bit high when he's trying to defend himself, which would be the worst time to defend yourself. But when she's like, it doesn't even pass through your mind when you're examining women. Mm -hmm. And he's like, this is sex is the furthest thing from either of our Mm -hmm. minds. And I'm always like, that's just such a fascinating thing because I think he's lying. Mm -hmm. But I also think he doesn't know how to explain that that doesn't count as cheating in a marriage. Mm -hmm. And so he just goes with this weird defense that she sees. I mean, I don't know that scene to me. I know we're jumping back here, but I'll just speak for myself, having been married for over 20 years. Man, do you have conversations like that in a marriage that just start at one point and just go all over and seem to last the whole night. And you're not even sure how you get into these situations where you're now defending your your whole profession or your whole whatever. Yep. I don't even have the language for it. There's such a specific quality to those moments in my memory mm-hmm. when I've had them um, that this just captures so well. Mm-hmm. And it might be some of that distending of time. It might be just how it just, they know so much about each other and each other's histories. And they're also like revealing things or not but it's just a perfect domestic scene if i had to pick a perfect domestic scene stoned or not anyway i I think it's that because i think that's what a very long relationship can often feel like in ways that people just aren't aware of when they watch movies usually yeah because your your logic doesn't matter (laughs) it doesn't work when you're in a marital discussion like the logic goes out the window and it becomes something weird these associations that you have and implications and any one person can just make an offhand comment that completely destabilizes the other person. Yeah. 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 And you, not that we're always playing to an audience in our mind, but we're usually playing to an audience and there's no audience when it's a one-on-one mm. hours long conversation. So you're making these really good points that would land if there was an audience. But if it's just one person and they don't buy your bullshit, mm. they just look at you like, no, that's not it. You suck. Again, I, I 
I have to imagine, I think Veronica put in the in the notes, what was the scene they filmed 95 times? I, I would be my candidate for one of the ones mm. that they probably did. Close to 100 versions of, because it is just, by the end, it's just a home movie of those two, I think. <laughs> that, so that bit in the notes is coming from like this well-reported observation that Kubrick made crews walk through a door 95 times. Oh, okay. And it made me wonder which entrance or exit <laughs> in the film that is. Isn't the the scene in the billiards room mm. with Sidney Pollack like? Didn't mm. they shoot that over like three weeks and did like hundreds of takes? Yeah, I did hear that. Yeah, it's an incredible scene. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I love about that scene is the way that, and I would love to hear some of your thoughts on the art in this mm. film and the paintings on the walls, which are mm. very interesting to me. But in that scene specifically, the billiards room is framed by these portraits mm. that are hanging all of single people mm. around the upper half of the room, mm. which to me directly mirrors the orgy scene with the people in masks mm. up on the balcony nice. staring down at him. Like, people who to me are the unmasked versions right of those masked people oh, that's great especially that's because they're all we know they're prominent mm. people who have had their portraits painted mm -hmm. yes <laughs> but i do feel like the way that the art is used in this film and of course speaking of jobs alice is like a failed art curator yes mm -hmm. I was um, that, yeah. yeah it's really interesting yeah that's good <laughs> I, I know i read somewhere in one of these you know an oral history of eyes wide shut after so many years type of pieces that that there's portraiture of kubrick's wife and daughter i think in the film oh, wow. i don't know if that's sure where is. it is well didn't his wife paint the pictures or maybe that's it maybe by not of hmm. i think his wife painted all the pictures yeah. in their house which by the way are all plants <laughs> i don't know if either of you noticed that but every painting in their house which is by the way their walls are full of paintings like yeah it's mad it's too many paintings <laughs> which i can only justify by maybe she had to close her gallery and that she had nowhere to put the paintings so that's they hung good. them all <laughs> on their walls but they're that's also it. that's what all, happened yeah they're all of vegetation and greenery and this growing stuff hmm. that is alive in a way that nothing else in the film. It's the one place we see the natural world, but mm. it's painted on their walls. Mm. Oh, yeah, the natural world. Yeah. Wow, that was fascinating. Yeah. Agreed. But I hadn't <laughs> noticed any of that. I think that's fantastic. Well, next time you watch it, pay attention. <laughs> I will ne next Christmas. Yeah. Do we want to talk about the living sculpture garden that is the orgy scene since it's such a prominent part of her criticism? I mean, I think we have to talk about that scene. Yeah, we do. Yeah, let's get to the orgy scene. Let's get to it. Okay, so Bill <laughs> decides he wants to go to this mysterious masquerade event that Nick is going to play piano at blindfolded. I think that's the fact that really sort of piques his curiosity the most and that it's like a bit out of the city and that there's a password. This is like a pre-speakeasy moment where the idea of presenting a password to go to a party is like bonkers, unthinkable. Rolls up. We... <laughs> It's <laughs> rolls, up. rolls up in a yellow cab <laughs> in his taxi. <laughs> um, I love this arrival because it does seem like even though we know Bill and Alice are rich as evidenced by their apartment and everything else, he does seem sort of like out of his depth instantly yeah. when we see him arrive at the party. It's a weird thing, but yeah, yeah, right. I, I was thinking that Steve Buscemi, like, hello, fellow kids. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Hi, I'm here at the orgy. God, Steve Buscemi would have been an amazing casting choice for this film. Yeah, we'll get to the casting choice. There were some interesting choices. Steve Martin. Yeah, okay, we'll, we'll get there now. Yeah, you know, it's very ornate inside. We do see Nick playing keys blindfolded. We get um, some of the original music. Everybody's in these Venetian masks that Kubrick had and were selected. I was going to ask, is there an origin story to why the masks were like that? Why they were like that? The whole style or the whole vibe of the... Why are they in the robes? I don't understand any of it. It goes back to that idea for me that time feels so distorted in this film because that scene feels like it could be happening in the medieval period. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and you even have the plague mask, you know? Like, mm -hmm. it seems very antiquated mm -hmm. and ritualistic in a way that could be happening at any century. Mm -hmm. Like, he steps into a different time. Mm. That is true. Inside those walls. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a portal. Yeah. Yeah, you could imagine that same scene has been going on for centuries, Yeah, right? Yeah, and that does seem to be like, yeah, I don't know, this kind of like sense of the original novella, which again, I hate bringing up because I haven't read it, but I know that it takes place 
around Mardi Gras and that's the point of the masquerade and they just shift the masquerade context to this kind of Christmas ball. Yeah, yeah, you know? I mean, that, that's accurate. Yeah, yeah this kind of normal, like, sex cult thing, which would involve anonymity, <laughs> you know? Just the normal sex normal cult Normal sex cult thing. thing. Yeah. Even though they're regulars, there's sure. still at least performative yeah. anonymity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it looks great. The staging is fantastic. Yeah, there's, like, that one piece that talks about how much they worked on the movement and trying to create these tableau that are not necessarily pornographic, mm-hmm. that were more suggestive and graphic on screen though for me even though i've read that kubrick was like we don't want any like thrusting there's definitely thrusting oh no there's thrusting there's thrusting and it looks so comically pedestrian (laughs) juxtaposed with all these sort of like posy compose and like with the space and everything and then you just have some guy humping and it's like yeah you can't class it up that much you know (laughs) like at the end of the day (laughs) it is what it is (laughs) we're all animals you know Yeah. <laughs> this is probably very unfair to to him, but I always think like, oh, this is what Stanley Kubrick thinks sex is like somehow. Mm, I hope not. No. I don't know. I mean, it, it's a very fascinating final statement from a guy who wasn't around and probably wouldn't have talked about it even if he was afterward. I don't know how much validity there is to this, but it was in one of the articles that we were passing around, but it was about how it's like the 2001 of marriages instead of space. <laughs> well equally to how that is not really what space is like yeah that's not, not what orgies are actually like or even like why would like a theatrical orgy be representative of what anyone would think sex writ large is like yeah you know like there's something really histrionic about the whole thing anyway i think no fair yeah I think the weirdest part about the orgy or the one of the more interesting parts is the way that we see people observing mm. the sex because again I'm going to go back to this like sculpture garden art museum mm. it seems like they're like contemplating a painting you know they're just like sitting you see those people just sitting watching Mm -hmm. almost like passive yes it is very (laughs) passive they don't seem aroused they don't seem excited it just seems like this strange passive viewing it's museum-y, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, it is. It's museum spectatorship. It is. Mm. More so than like sex party participation. Especially that room he walks into with the women who are up mm-hmm. sort of on the table. Mm-hmm. Like it looks to me like, yeah, like an art museum room mm-hmm. with a centerpiece. Mm-hmm. It's weird. Yeah, yeah. The whole thing is very weird. It's part of like the class <laughs> that the film is obsessed with. This kind of like elite world mm-hmm. where you wouldn't be making any noise while any of this is happening. You wouldn't be like remarking to anyone. It's all really ritualistic and there's like implied rules. And it's part of his like failure to understand those rules that ultimately exposes Bill in what's kind of like a harrowing confrontation when he's called out. Oh my God, yeah. I get so nervous yes. at that part yeah. every time. Oh. And that red cloaked guy in the he's like the emperor from Star Wars or something. <laughs> it's very much like, oh my God, I have fucked up so bad here and it is all cut up with me right now. Yeah. Oh, I hate those scenes in movies. Oh. The moment when he's like, remove your clothing or do you want us to do it <laughs> yeah. for you? It's like <laughs> your clothes off. Whoa. Like it, that's the moment where you're like, okay, it seems like things are getting so far out of hand compared to his expectations, right? He thinks he might just make a sort of etiquette-based faux pas where they're like, listen. And man, you don't belong here. You got to go. Yeah. But in that moment, you're like, are they going to kill him? Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> like, exactly. What's yeah. going to happen now? The change in register is yeah. ah, so effective, I think. So good. Yeah. But so uncomfortable. The women do seem like they are being sacrificed to sex in a way. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. we're taking you and making you do this. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess they're willing, but question mark. Mm-hmm. But it also doesn't really seem like they're there for enjoyable purposes. <clears throat> it seems like a ritual that they are being put through. So, yeah, it does feel like. You could see them ritualistically. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to him. I assume it's just like uh, an employment situation. You know, it's the holidays. <laughs> this is probably a lot per hour. Season, some seasonal yeah, work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like people who work for UPS for two weeks. <laughs> UPS it is. I got the orgy thing to do. So, you yeah, know, this is yeah. like the hot Manhattan UPS job where you're just like, listen, like my show is on hiatus. So I'll just go do this weird thing upstate. They hire in under 30 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I had an actual point there. I'm so, sorry, Chad. Uh, what was my... No, no, I just, I know, that was great. Oh, that it's really scary and they might kill him? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was one of my bigger points in the whole thing. I should say, I tried to write about this movie um, mm. a few years ago and I spent months on it and it didn't go anywhere. So that's why I'm glad we can just talk about it and I can just throw that aside. But the, one of the things I was really trying to unpack was just how every time even the slightest actual hint of actual sexual desire shows up, very quickly there's an echo or a response of some death-related thing very quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the AIDS threat. Mm-hmm. The AIDS thing was, the yeah, Ver- yeah, Veronica's favorite erotic scene was immediately ending. She didn't She didn't mention it. ended with him saying, oh, by the way, <laughs> the woman you were talking with yesterday has HIV positive. Yeah. The hottest yeah. part of that scene. Yeah. yeah. Super sexy. <laughs> yeah, it's just the novella was written by a guy, you know, who was, I believe, in Austria at the time. He was at least well enough acquainted with Freud that they wrote letters to each other. Mm-hmm. So it's not accidental that the novella was like mm-hmm. this. And there was a quote where he said, you know, all your books are about this. And he's like, yeah, I write about sex and death. What else is there to write about? What else is there? Yeah, what else is there? I mean, oh, my God, did you guys get full Wikipedia on him to see, like, the journal he kept and mm-hmm. how he tracked every orgasm he had for, like, most of his life? You don't do that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't put it on my Wikipedia page. Mm. But, yeah, I, I just think that the closest you could put to it, which doesn't really work for an essay but works in a podcast, is that it's messy enough that it's not always a perfect tracking between actual erotic sexual impulse poking through the movie and then immediate like death popping up to shut it all down mm. but it happens a lot and it happens not quite all the time so it's again more like a dream thing where it's like if you look at the whole movie is taking place in tom cruise's head it makes a lot of sense that anytime mm. he has thoughts of sex immediately the death impulse shows up and says let's shut that all down and that part when i think the first time i saw it i thought they were going to kill him uh, in this orgy scene and that was like the, so kind of the culmination of that feeling this is the time i'm going to choose to drop in that part that i told you guys both before which is that i was lucky enough to watch this movie in the theater with my parents what yeah how did that go <laughs> terribly <laughs> We don't talk about it still. Wow. You know, I was like 20 years old. So we were on vacation with my parents. And I should say, the full lineup, if you if you need the full lineup, was uh, yes. me, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, no. my sister, her boyfriend, who was also one of my good friends, and then my parents. Oh, boy. It was Chad. You should pick the movie while we're on vacation. And Chad was a little bit of a... Let's see what happens here. Oh my God, you did it. (laughs) I did it. I went for it. It was your fault, Chad. I mean, I would say there was a lot of pressure because everyone really wanted to see the Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman. And I was like, well, I don't know if this is going to be what we think it is. But at the time, it was opening weekend. So none of the reviews were out that it was this weird movie. Everyone just thought it was going to be this crazy movie. And my, my parents are wonderful people, but fairly religious and conservative at that point. So it was... Just them staring at me for the rest of vacation. Like, (laughs) why did you do this to us? You were unmasked. (laughs) I was unmasked as a deviant. (laughs) They're like, is this why you like movies? No, that is. Wow. But it was was an experience. The Logan Roy. Are you a sicko? (laughs) Yes, that's exactly. That's the thing. (laughs) Anyway, uh, so sorry to take away from my real main point there. But that was the context in which I watched this incredibly uncomfortable orgy scene. I mean, it's just crazy to think about because I feel like even now, like I, I saw this movie in the theater most recently, I think two years ago. 2019. Oh, nice. You saw it on the big screen? I did. I saw it at Metrograph on 35. Great. And um, it was like a late night show. I had so many snacks (laughs) and (laughs) had just like come from a bar and was just loving life. And (laughs) I find the film really funny. I do too, actually. Mm -hmm. Or I should say a lot of moments in the movie elicit laughter from me that are not necessarily about being amused, Hmm. but more like shocked or surprised (laughs) or uncomfortable. Yeah. Or like delighted. I know there's like one of the things that comes up in film Twitter discourse sex scenes in movies or uh, I don't know any of the like things that come up cyclically prompts yeah Mm -hmm. one that I've been seeing lately is people expressing a kind of like frustration with what they interpret to be like like zoomer spectators laughing in repertory screenings and that that's taken as this sign Mm -hmm. of like ridicule of the movie on screen and Hmm. you know kids these days don't understand or have no respect or something and I just think that is so misinformed and weird. I was going to say, that's really misguided, like, psychologically. I think they're yeah. uncomfortable, maybe. Yeah. Well, I j- just the idea that the ideal spectator is, like, silent and respectful feels completely oh, ridiculous. That, yeah. 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 And that laughter is only ever when you find things amusing. Yeah. I mean, you shouldn't laugh at an orgy. You should be silent yes. you know, when you're at an orgy. But <laughs> that's what we that's the takeaway from Eyes Wide Shut. Zoomers laughing at orgies. Be seen and not heard when you go to the Christmas orgy. If you're lucky enough to get the password. Lighten it up, Kubrick. No, but I do think this movie elicits, uh, you know, reactions that should be vocal. Mm. Yes. 
there's so many scenes that are just so wild. Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel like we haven't even talked about at all the scene where she tells him the dream that she had, mm -hmm. yeah. which is another weird, <sighs> uncanny moment because her dream replicates exactly what he's just been through, right? So then you have that. They're all going to laugh at you. Oh, yes. That strange mesh of like, what is in his mind? What's in her mind? Are they sharing a mind space? How is this happening? Mm. And also her laughter when he wakes her up, it's just so unnerving. Oh, and then the dream laughter is the freakiest. The way he says, like, I thought you were having a nightmare, but you know that he woke her up because he knew she was enjoying something. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, it's so weird and upsetting. And it's it got to be like, no idea, three o'clock in the morning. Hmm. I think he says it's four o'clock. Hmm. And four yet again, okay. the light looks like it should be about six o'clock. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like her acting in that scene and the way she's reliving it. And sometimes you're wondering, is she lying about the emotions she was feeling in the dream? Is she saying that it was a nightmare when really she was enjoying it? And his face is just wooden and yes. yeah. God, you know, you have Tom Cruise, like magnetic star power. Like what if he is just, to, to, you know, again, totally stripped down of all of that and hearing just like the worst thing after he's just been through a lot himself. Mm, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's coming home and this is like, you know, the attachment theory thing. Let's, let me come back to my safe harbor and like get back to my world. And then she's just not safe at all in that moment for him. Mm -hmm. And just, it's just pummeling him even further. It's a really amazing scene. And, the, you know, it's an echo because mm. it, it's very similar to that first thing she said during their stone conversation and I'm, I'm gonna sit here and make you listen to this thing this time it's not mean that she's telling him she seems pretty freaked out i don't know it's such a long time to be recounting every detail of this obviously painful <laughs> dream it is she was trying to hurt him subconsciously yes i mean i've definitely had dreams that i should not <laughs> share with others that i don't share right you just say i don't remember yeah, yeah. no one's gonna audit your mind you know oh that part's foggy yeah it was upsetting yeah yeah. yeah, but like I think part of the fucked upness of this movie in general and sort of why we were thinking about talking about it in addition to the sort of tortured production history and everything else is it's similar to Mulholland Drive in that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think it tempts viewers to want to solve the movie, exactly. which I just find so wrongheaded. And actually the movie is like reveling in all these layers and echoes and this kind of like palimpsestic approach to what's real, what's shared, mm. what constitutes intimacy between two people who spend all their time together, essentially, what constitutes a violation of that intimacy and can you come back from it? All of that is like kind of mundane, like issues and questions, but the film seems to want to explore them in these more expressionistic ways. Yeah. I think it's also Lost Highway-ish too. Totally. Ooh, which Elizabeth wrote about in her very first issue. So <laughs> I did. <laughs> and complete with a map on how everything connects. I still remember. Big Lost Highway fan. <laughs> One thing I just feel like I have to say is I was looking at the Wikipedia and like the awards that have been nominated for and mostly lost mm -hmm. and it was nominated for Best Foreign Film Cesar Award <laughs> and lost to fucking Life is Beautiful. Oh my god. I mean to be fair lots of stuff in 1999 lost to Life is Beautiful. So, But do you not love, I mean you could have taken your entire family to that movie Chad. I mean I'd have to check the release date because we were on vacation mm. in July of 1999. But 1999, I mean, we didn't even talk about the context of like, this was one of the biggest years for movies ever. Even Tom Cruise, I mean, I'd watched Magnolia three mm. times in a theater. So I had seen plenty mm -hmm. of the opposite. Tom Cruise, I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson's approach was the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. Like, let's turn this all the way up to 11. Right. Mm -hmm. To have those two movies come out in the same year and to have those two versions of Tom Cruise in my head, that was a really fun time to be alive miss it yeah and then he went off to shoot the mission impossible sequel with john woo and like hang off a cliff for a while and like right yeah. fuck all this stuff that Stanley Kubrick's doing. Like, i mean the range you know, is just incredible the range <laughs> by way of culmination when we talked at the opening of the issue being fubar mm. and we couldn't decide what that last r for i think in this movie it works for both mm. it is fucked up beyond all recognition as a space Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the movie. Facial recognition. Facial, facial recognition, <laughs> all kinds of recognition. And, well, I don't know if it's fucked up beyond a repair, though. Because by the end, I do think we get an impression that they're going to go home and, and maybe try to rejuvenate things, so to speak. Mm. <laughs> it is a Christmas movie at the mm -hmm. end because it's, yeah. she forgives him. It's forgiveness. And he was redeemed by the savior of this woman at the party. And then he's forgiven by his wife. Ooh, and, like yeah. you know, he's coming home into a more unified, their eyes are open now, she says. Yeah, right? we're awake now. 
Ooh, they are no longer wide shut. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they have like such a lovely, compliant little daughter. Yeah. <laughs> the most unrealistic part of the movie for me. Helena. What is that kid? And I would say I'm pretty sure like the, the best thing you can do to end your entire career as a legendary director is to have the very last line of your very last movie be. <laughs> Fuck. Yep. Yeah. I love that scene. Kubrick nailed it. It's a wonderful ending. It's great. Yeah. It's perfect. To a movie that I would have no idea how to end if I was making it. I love the way the sound of the bustling department store like drops out entirely as they're having this kind of whispery conversation Ooh. in earshot mm -hmm. of their daughter who is merely picking out a Barbie. She's right there. Yeah. That is very realistic though. <laughs> Those conversations. Chad, I have definitely had conversations that I'm yes. silently trying to have with Chris. So many conversations in stores. Like, let's make sure the kids are having a good time because we're secretly fighting. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh, man. So many. And so many, like, uh, checking out stuff at Target or whatever. And the person on the other side checking out the stuff has no idea yeah. that we're just in this huge fight. And we're just like, oh, yeah, how are you today? And how Merry Christmas. Mm -hmm, and oh, yeah, exactly. just getting some last minute stuff. And you're like, <laughs> we just went out at this whole store. We, we went to that department. We went in that department. Having our little silent <laughs> stare downs and fights. Yeah. <laughs> Mostly it's a wonderful marriage, though, I should say. Cause she yeah. Listens, so. yeah. Great. A happy ending in every way. No. <laughs> do not want that. <laughs> Last call? Let's do it. Okay. Every episode, we end with a wrap-up segment where we ask our guest, in this case, Elizabeth, for the last thing that you watched recently, aside from the rewatch of the movie that we just talked about, and then a quick staff recommendation of something you might put out there for people to consume. So what is the last thing that you watched? Uh, the last movie I watched was Tick, Tick, Boom, because mm. I'm trying to work my way through some of the new movies this year that I have not yet seen. I liked it. I think I'm, yeah. <laughs> Okay. I saw that yesterday. I'm doing the exact same thing. Oh. Yeah. Did you think it worked? And you take that however you want? Uh, I did mostly think it worked. I did mostly okay. think it worked. And, and I came around to it more by the end. I, it took me a while to settle into it. But the, the thing I mostly take away from it is that it made me just want to go see Rent again. Yeah, exactly. Which I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I'd like to go see Rent again. <laughs> but I do love Andrew Garfield. Let's see, as far as a recommendation, mm -hmm. I mean, this is a recommendation that's probably not useful to most of our listeners because I think most of them hopefully have already seen it. But as Chad and Veronica, I think, know from our Slack, I watched Sunset Boulevard for the first time oh, maybe yeah. a month ago. And I do think a lot of people haven't seen that. Listen, if you've never seen it, put it on. No. I was just blown away by how weird it was. And speaking of FUBAR, I feel like Sunset Boulevard is a real FUBAR film. Oh, man. Totally. Big FUBAR. And I just ate it up. What a movie. Oh my goodness. If you have been waiting on that one or thinking like, eh, I kind of know what it's about. Because I also was like, whatever, old movie star. She's kind of messed up. I get it. I'm ready for my close up, Mr. DeMille. Yep. I knew that, but it was great. It was great. And I'm surprised as the big David Lynch fan you've been since you've been a person I've known that you, I know that's one of his like three favorite movies. I, yeah, exactly. And I knew that too, yeah. but I was kind of like, well, I know what the deal is. <laughs> I don't need to watch it, but yeah, I'm glad I watched it. Cool. <laughs> I think people have that reaction to Eyes Wide Shut in a way too, you know? Oh, by now. Yeah. That's you know? fascinating. It's like, oh, I assume because of the sort of cultural iconography of the movie, what it's more or less about, but you take that two hours, 38 minutes and you really find out what's going on oh boy you go on a journey <laughs> yeah yeah okay well i think that's a wrap on eyes wide shut i think we uh i think we solved it I think we got it <laughs> And Elizabeth, where can we find you or your writing online? Well, a lot of my writing recently is on Bright Wall Dark Room. <laughs> so Ooh, I love it. Check that publication out. <laughs> it's going places. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at EC Cantwell. Thanks for being here with us today, Elizabeth. It's always so great to talk with you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. That was fun. Yeah, Elizabeth, thank you so much. I feel like I learned so much about the movie hearing you talk about yeah. it. That was great. Wonderful. I, I know I told Veronica probably a year ago whenever we were trying to get the podcast going, like, uh, I just wanted Elizabeth and, and Veronica to be on a podcast together because I was like, oh, their minds together is going to be great. So. You're right. It works. So thank you, guys. That was wonderful. Very fun. Yeah. A couple quick reminders to read this month's issue, which includes new essays on The Royal Tenenbaums, Manhunter, Don't Look Now, Batman Returns, great Christmas movie. From Elizabeth. Great Christmas movie. Wild Mountain Time, which I can't say with a straight face, and more. <laughs> or browse through any of our previous 100 issues. Please visit us at brightwalldarkroom.com or sign up for our free weekly newsletter. 
We're also extremely online, for better or worse, on Twitter at BWDR. And thanks for listening. In general, if you haven't already, please do be sure to subscribe to the podcast, share the show with a friend, tell your parents about it. (laughs) Consider leaving us a positive rating or review. That helps us reach more movie lovers like you, which uh, I'm fond of saying at the end is exactly why we do all this. We want to have a conversation and be in conversation with all of you. So please do help us in whatever ways you can. Which would also include, in addition to rating and reviewing, supporting the podcast by visiting us at patreon.com slash brightwalldarkroom. Our theme music is composed by our very own Chad Perman. This podcast is produced and edited by Eli Sands. And that's it for a year of podcasting our first year. Happy holidays, everybody. We look forward to seeing you in 2022 uh, for some fantastic more podcasting. fantastic more podcasting oh my god no i love it it's perfect we'll see you next year for some fantastic more podcasting thanks for listening I cut you off, Chad. What were you going to say? Um, he doesn't know. I mean, that's always the question. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, lost it. He has no idea. What, are we ta- what movie are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs>